episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Grossman. My friends know me as JAG. I'm CEO of the Atlas Society, which is the leading nonprofit think tank connecting young people with the ideas of Ayn Rand. Today, this is our most exciting webinar. We actually have joining us Chip Wilson. I'm going to get to introducing him in a second. I want to urge each of you that are joining us on Zoom, on Facebook, on YouTube, streaming live to, uh, to tee up your questions for Ch Chip. Just put them into the, the chat uh, section or into the comment stream. Please keep them short and we will get to as many of them as we can. Chip Wilson is best known as the founder of the yoga-inspired company Lululemon Athletica. He is a visionary in technical apparel, uh, the proud fa father of five, which is quite an accomplishment in, <laughs> in the lockdowns. Just to, uh, we'll, we'll have to hear about that uh, later on. He is uh, the founder, again, of Lululemon, as well as West Beach. Um, as, as the founder of those, he really has revolutionized the way the world dresses, um, inventing the athleisure, I know he doesn't like that term that much, retail category, which is now a $100 billion global industry. With his wife, Shannon, he established the Wilson School of Design, uh, which educates students in innovative design for fashion interiors. You can see that in your own beautiful interior there. Uh, and technical apparel. His memoir is Little Black Stretchy Pants, the unauthorized story of Lululemon, which the Atlas Society was very proud to, uh, to feature in our book club recently. So Chip, welcome. Thanks again for joining us. Well, thanks, Jag. That's quite an introduction. I appreciate it very much. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, and, and thank you, Chip. You have been, uh, you just provided me with a lot of inspiration during these past 12 months and also a lot of moral support. So I just want to let you know you're, you're the fuel that keeps, keeps me going. So um, the story of, of your life, Chip, which I now feel like I've, I've memorized. I've <laughs> read this book a few times uh, and I really did need to internalize it because, of course, we uh, brought it into our Draw My Life video. My name is Chip Wilson, uh, which really connected with our um, international audience, drawing 10 million views, including about 4 million views in India. Uh, it's the story of a kid whose father drove trucks, uh, his mother was a seamstress, a kid who loved sports, um, but didn't love school, and who found himself on the Alaskan pipeline. Um, which is a hot topic today, but there you discovered uh, the book Atlas Shrugged. So tell us a little bit about the uh, story of how you found yourself at that point and, and what led you to read the book. Well, first off, it, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me was uh, um, I, I got discovered at, at Edmonton Airport, got a job on the Alaska oil pipeline as an 18 year old um, probably the highest paid laborer in the world, cost plus project, but working 18 hours a day and a lot of downtime, um, just traveling in a car, sitting in a tent, keeping industrial parts warm or, um, and that type of thing. So I had lots of time. So boredom, boredom is an incredible thing. So what did I do? I decided to read the top 100 books of all time. And of course, uh, at that time in 
God, who knows when that was, <laughs> 65, 75, 76 type of thing. There was no internet, so I just got it off a newspaper. And on that list, of course, was Atlas Shrugged. So um, I read Atlas Shrugged and thought it was, you know, so as an 18-year-old, I thought, man, this is a great book, <clears throat> but then forgot about it. And it really wasn't until I was like 52 years old and I went, I'm going to go back and reread that book. And I read it and I went, oh my God. I said, this book had an amazing effect on my life. And not just from hard work and uh, creativity and believing in myself, but also I think uh, that um, Dagny Taggart was so much like my grandmother, who was a businesswoman in San Diego running a furniture business. And um, I was competitive swimmer, so 50% of the people I hung out with were really hardworking Olympic type swimmers. There were few Olympic swimmers on our team. And, um, and then, so I think I had a great basis for when I started Lou Lemon and I had some, some statistical information and that to move into that business with a lot of confidence about, about who women could be. That's that's really interesting because, of course, in your book, uh, you had a vision for your customer at Lululemon, and you were catering to what you described as um, the modern Dagny Taggart, uh, a supergirl, sort of an iconic customer. And, of course, you talked about how you learned quite a bit uh, from the, the women that you encountered in yoga class, just like you had earlier <coughs> learned from uh, the, the, your swim, swim team mates that, that were, you know, women uh, that were swimming and the problems that they had with the uh, design and the limitations. So how did that experience uh, shape the way you approached building Lululemon? I don't know if I had so much to learn from them. Um, I think it was more a recognition that all of a sudden 60% of the graduates of, out of university were women. Mm -hmm. and, and I knew from working in Africa that the more education a woman has, the fewer children she'll have and the longer she'll wait to have them. So I kind of came up with this idea that there was going to be a target market of a 23 to 32 year old single professional, athletic, healthy, condoing, traveling woman that had never existed before as an employee and a uh, consumer. But up till that time, um, companies would never invest in women because they just assumed at 24 they were going to leave the marketplace. But I figured out in advance that that wasn't going to be the case. And it was really, uh, it really made it worth my while building a woman's apparel company to then put lots of money into uh, training and development of women to not be good, but to be great in life. Yeah, and that is what you, uh, your takeaway from reading Atlas Shrugged which has kind of become a, a tagline for all of these videos, was elevating the world from mediocrity to, to greatness, that that was the message that there seemed to be a lot of people in the world who wanted, you know, that, that they got more satisfaction from seeing other people uh, stumble, you know, than, than raising themselves up, raising other people up. Um, so, you know, it also seems like you've had a philosophical bent 
which is, is, you know, interesting because you were an athlete, you were a jock in school and you even got uh, sort of teased for, for being a jock when, when you moved from Southern California up to Canada. And I think they would say, uh, big like bull, dumb like a refrigerator. Yeah. Um, it was interesting, but, um, but, you know, I could see this philosophical and practical strain coming together when you spent a half an hour back in 1998 uh, compiling a list of sayings that you called the ma manifesto. So yeah. tell us about the manifesto and how uh, it ultimately integrated with the, the branding of uh, Lululemon. Well, I, I was looking at culture in a company differently than I think other people were, where I think just visioning and values were coming into place. And I was thinking of it from the point of view, like what has really affected my life? And so there were f maybe four, five books and courses of which did that. And one of them would have been, of course, Atlas Shrug. And we had um, uh, Good to Great by Collins, the landmark course by uh, uh, what's called Landmark Education. Um, and you know, seven habits of highly effective people. And, and then I actually kind of vacillate between a few others, but we'll leave it at that. But to pick, to go through these and go, what was amazing about those books and take kind of 30 terms and definitions or thoughts that I had. And just, I just wrote them quickly in 30 minutes on, on, on a piece of paper. And, um, and interesting about, I think, philosophy in general, when someone's seen as a philosopher, it's really they've just stolen a whole bunch of things from a whole bunch of different people or put two different disparate ideas together. And I think the manifesto, which ended up being on the side of the Lou Lemon bags, which they've taken off now because it's too controversial for them and they don't litigation. And we live in a society where you can't, you can't have a point of view that that's been taken off. But uh, it really did set the culture. It's the reason that people came to work for Lou Lemon. And I'm very proud of it to this day. Well, um, for sure, I think in the building of, of Lululemon, the early beginnings, uh, you know, the kinds of marketing that you would embrace, even, you know, just ways of knowing that there were a lot of choices that people had, that you were doing something different and that uh, you were trying to, to break through and that people appreciated the, you know, the authenticity of, uh, sometimes doing something wacky, like saying, okay, if you guys, uh, if we're gonna give away uh, free product to the first people that uh, show up naked at a store. Tell us a little bit about what shaped that very, you know, some examples maybe of, of some of the early unconventional marketing, which you do detail in the book. Well, I think you, you hit it on the head with the word authenticity, Jake. Um, of course, we live in a world now where authenticity isn't tolerated on, on any kind of level. Um, and back, back in 1998, it was, it was more so, but it was, I was really looking at where, where are people fooled? And so one of the things I saw is that Nike and Adidas would sponsor uh, athletes and give them a whole bunch of money to say that Nike and Adidas were great products. It didn't mean they were great products. It's just that they were paid to do it. So I figured that smart, media savvy 
well-educated professional woman could see right through that. And I said, so what is authentic then? So for me, what was authentic is who the uh, hero in the community was. And for us, it was the, the leader of the, the yoga, the, you know, the yoga leader, or, um, you know, it could have been actually any sport, but just at that particular time, that was our focus. And I think because yoga was a lot about uh, living in the moment, being present, being thoughtful, uh, being great, being thankful, um, it really resonated, especially with the target market that that single professional woman again. And I wanna encourage again, those of you who are joining us, we're going to try to get to, uh, to some of your questions. So please put them in the chat. Uh, I think um, we have one from a regular to at our webinars with a funny name, Fossilized Dodo. Um, that's his name on YouTube. And that's, that's authentic, I guess. I'm not sure what it means, but anyway, he asks, during the first hundred novels that you read on your time working on the pipeline, uh, did you happen to come across other Ayn Rand works or, or only Atlas Shrugged? No, no, def um, well, of course I can't remember. You know, that was a long time ago. Um, I do know that I didn't stop at 100 books when I was 18. I mean, once, you start, once I did that and I, God, I felt like I must have been the highly, best educated 18-year-old in the world, you know, coming off an oil pipeline with a bad accent, bad Oklahoma accent. And <laughs> but, uh, uh, definitely, you know, I, I moved right into Fountainhead. And I would say I didn't even know there were any other books back then. It's not like you could kind of like Google and go, okay, well, what other right. books is Anne Rand? And, and I probably didn't like look at it from a point of view of like, that's, that's a full, I didn't see it as a philosophy. I just, I actually just read them as great books, fictional books to read. And I went, but in all fiction, there's a lot of truth. So no, I would say that um, Fountainhead, if, if it wasn't there, great. If it wasn't, I, I read it quickly thereafter. And then I, I really, probably not till I was 45 that I read Anthem, I think. Mm -hmm. So No, it's interesting when you're talking about authenticity. And I, I think that that is one of the factors that drives the success of the draw my life genre that we have. It is not, it, it doesn't feel like a commercial. It doesn't feel like an overproduced piece. You know, you're watching the artist's hand and sometimes there are mess ups and sometimes that, you know, they, they correct them and you're hearing the voice of, uh, of the person who's narrating the video. So um, I think it's that. I, I think the other thing, it, I mean, I, I've just been so, thrilled to see how popular and how these have translated into um, to other countries but uh, there's a there's a hunger for positivity I think that there is so much negative news right now and it almost feels like we're you know almost manipulated to be uh, frightened and to be pessimistic but that's you know not the not necessarily the case you'd say well, I think you, I mean, this is a critical um, conversation in life. And our last Atlas uh, Award winner, Peter Diamandis, would put it, and I love the way he puts it, is that it's all about mindset. And our mindset is almost all brought together by who we hang out with and what we read. 
And so if we're, if we're reading for negativity, then that's who we're going to be. If we're going to read that the world is falling apart and it's no good. And, uh, you know, you can, you can read that incessantly. And the, what the, the amygdala, the amygdala, I'm not very amygdala. good at that. Thank you. Well, um, you know, was, is scanning 10 times for bad news over a piece of good news. But it doesn't have to be good news. It has to be like, where is the future going? How is it solving all the issues of the world of climate change and space travel and longevity and diseases? And it, we live in the most amazing time on every statistic possible, um, you know, poverty, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So if, if we if we decide that we're going to be positive, we decide the world's great, then sure enough, it's great. And that's where I come from. Yeah, well, uh, that is, and that's been um, one of the reasons I was so eager to have you on this, um, this webinar, because I think if there's been one theme that we've had with a, a lot of the guests that we've had on previously, Marion Tupi, and uh, John Tierney, you know, uh, th these are scholars that have really talked about um, how the world has been getting better uh, in every metric. And, um, and also that we, we have to compensate for a little bit of this wiring that we have towards, uh, towards sort of a negative um, bias. So I wanted though to, to get back a little bit to, the, um, to your book and our video. Uh, which okay. talk about another company that you built, West Beach, which anticipated, you know, it's, it's interesting, in both cases, you, you, there were things that you loved, there were things that you did, you know, you were a snowboarder, you had found yourself in a, in a yoga class, so they, they were things that you already had sort of a natural um, passion for, but also that you were anticipating these, these shifts, um, these market shifts, and West Beach, anticipated the rise of the surf, skate, snowboarding culture. Um, looking back, what are some of the key similarities in your experience building West Beach and Lululemon and what are some of the key differences? Well, the similarities would be, I, I, and, I, and I hold it again to being a ferocious reader, is I would I would always be looking for things in the newspaper or, you know, I'd even look at telephone posts, you know, like when you pull a little tab off, you know, for a yoga class. But it, it's, it's a convergence of three things that happen within one week. And when I see those three things happen, then I know a trend is occurring. So I think I probably, <clears throat> I probably bought, brought Australian surf, which then came to California, and I brought that to Japan and Europe. So I was just ahead of that market. And then I saw the demise of that and skateboarding come up and then the same for snowboarding and then the same for, for, um, for yoga, not, notwithstanding I failed a few times. Um, <clears throat> now that I've said that, what was the question, Jay? <laughs> the question was what were like some of the similarities and some of the differences between the sure. two co companies. And wh what I'm hearing is that one of the similarities was uh, that, you know, you were looking for cultural convergences, you were almost yeah. like looking for signs from, from the universe. And in both cases, you got that in both companies. But what were some of the, uh, the differences? differences or, you know, maybe sure. it's, it's that like Lululemon became 
so um, big and so uh, popular that it also, you know, was it was harder to keep, you know, to just fend off maybe, you know, people that uh, that didn't yeah. share your vision. Yeah, it's a <clears throat> interesting thing about structure of an organization as it gets bigger. You know, as West Beach was small, um, I was able to do exactly what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it and take risks in the, in the mm -hmm. way that I thought they should be done, put an X amount of money over here as opposed to over there. And, um, but, but being young and not having very much money and not having very much knowledge about finances or sales or logistics, it made sense for me to get into business with two partners. And, and really, there's a lot of great things about being in partnership <clears throat> in that you do get some expertise in. But then suddenly, the big idea kind of gets watered down. And it's a, it's, it's a little bit of that committee type of thing. And then I sold <clears throat> West Beach and I decided, no, you know, I have to do this on my own this next time. So <laughs> when I hit Lululemon... <laughs> <clears throat> when I did Lululemon, it was all, I had a very clear thought and direction about where I wanted to go. I'm sorry. <clears throat> and, um, and by the way, everybody, it it's not, it's not COVID <laughs> because he's, 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 uh, he's after his quarantine and he's got his fourth negative test. And <laughs> more importantly, this guy takes really good care of his, his health. Thanks. And so um, when I started West Beach, again, I had that, that ability to do it exactly the way that I wanted to do it. And, I, and then there became a time when I went, okay, everyone's telling me that I can't make a $110 million company into a billion, billion dollar company. I don't have it. I don't have the experience. I'm, you know, like you, or, you know, you should diversify, take some money off the table, put it somewhere where it's safe. You know, and um, and that, you know, it's great. I made the decision. I'm responsible. I did all of those things. But looking back at it, um, yeah, I had a hell of an idea. And um, and I mm -hmm. believe so much in myself. But quite frankly, I also had three kids under the age of two and a wife. And I hadn't had a dollar in my back pocket in my life. I'd put it all into the business. And at a certain time, I guess... A human being can make that decision and it's again my responsibility I got something out of it I got family and I got connection and I got um, uh, and I got some I got security you know for I could buy a house and put some money in the bank but what did I give up I give up I gave up what I think I um, um, Rand would call um, a group of people that come from the side and are, are, are insecure. They, they coming, they don't know how to create themselves. So they're kind of, they want to, it's, they've understood how to get the money from the people that can create and then to consolidate power and then mm -hmm. to basically move the person who had the idea out because, you know, quite frankly, it, it, a, a creator is somebody who is makes, um, I'd say a majority of people nervous in business because the ideas are out there. They're five, 10 years in the future. It's a convergence of millions of ideas that are coming together. 
And, um, and for somebody that's kind of raised in finance or uh, raised in some kind of, you know, where security is the survival mechanism, they, they abhor that and they come together and it's just easier for them to, to work as a group to, um, to, you know, to, to get what they want out of life. They're entrepreneurs themselves, just in a different way. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, Ayn Rand did talk about that. She talked about secondhanders. And I think that what, that was one of the things that most resonated with me when I first read her books, that, I, uh, th that the way she articulated um, envy and as something very irrational, you know, that it wasn't necessarily that envy in terms of covetousness, that somebody wanted what you had, but that they just um, resented you for, for your virtues. Um, speaking of envy, we do have a question on that from our friend, Jay LaPere, who you know. Yes, uh, hi, Jay. He's the chairman of um, the board to the Atlas Society. Um, and uh, Jay, uh, of course, is um, CEO of, um, of uh, uh, a very large global uh, manufacturing company, Latrum, which uh, he, and he's very interested in, in culture and in, in creating a management philosophy and culture. And so his question is, what are the major obstacles to initiate a culture based on the optimistic and aspirational view of uh, a persona and a group potential? Do envy and resentment uh, and gratitude influence this opportunity? I've seen this many times, and it depends on when when you're starting. If you're trying to, if you're moving into a big company and you're trying to change the culture, there's a natural immune system. The company mm -hmm. just wants to kick that virus out, the virus of new ideas, new culture, new ways of being. So, uh, I've almost had it in my mind now, where at the the minute that the company has started is the minute to put in. Um, what I'd call operating principles, again, like the code of conducts, the, um, the, the manifesto that, you, that the company would have from the culture of the five books that's, gonna, that's either driving the owner or the business. Um, and so um, I think that that, so, and so the second thing, so then you can do that at the start, but what happens when you get into a big company and suddenly you have um, a culture that's 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 almost eating itself. I well, I think then the Machiavellian comes in. You need to actually get rid of probably the top six people really quickly and bring your own people in. Um, the 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 other thing in the more draconian way of doing it is actually firing everybody and restarting the company the next day with the way that the culture needs to be in order to not just live and survive, but to be great in the new world, technological world that we live in. Yeah, I, I think that there is um, sort of an HR type tradition uh, of saying, well, we can make, you know, we can change people or we can make anything work with people, but, uh, but you know, it certainly is very, very time consuming. You know, at the same time, I, I do know that, um, you used the, the uh, landmark forum in your 
uh, in your business. And so how was uh, personal development? How was that course, you know, in particular, what are, how was that important in creating the culture of Lululemon? And what are some of the key takeaways for, for other companies or even a small nonprofit like the Atlas Society? Well, uh, it, it too has its uh, manifesto and its linguistic abstraction of, you know, what, what, what is defined in, uh, in being great. And so what I determined out of the course was in a company, all, every person feels they have integrity, but everybody has a different definition of integrity. It's fascinating. Consequently, a company has no integrity. So the only way to have it then is for the company to define exactly what integrity means for that company or conversely for me as a person, which ended up being the same thing. So my, <clears throat> my definition is um, I do what I say I will do when I say I will do it in the expected way. And if I cannot get it done, as I said, I was going to do it in the expected way, then I got to clean up my mess and set new conditions of satisfaction with new buy-win dates. So that's a definition that the whole company works for that I can take globally. <clears throat> so um, other ones would be, another big one is choice. And I didn't really get how little choice I have in life. Like if you look at a grandparent who, like even my mother that lives on the San Diego border, who's an Irish immigrant, well, she has all sorts of things to say about Mexican immigrants, and she can't even see herself as an immigrant anymore. Because as a person gets older and has more negative experiences, their thoughts about what is possible in life gets slimmer and slimmer and slimmer. So really, choice comes from imagining that you got hit by a car, you woke up in the hospital with amnesia, you have zero past. And then how would, you, how would a person create how would they think? It changes dramatically. So, um, so to train and develop people into free choice creates a company of amazing creativity because it doesn't get stuck in the past. And it's only about the, it's creating the present from the future, not creating the present from the past. And I could go into lots of this. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's amazing because I, I think that, you know, as pandemic and as the, the lockdowns have uh, worn on that people uh, can start to feel stuck, you know, and start to feel like they are trapped. So that just that thought experiment in and of itself of like, okay, you know, let's say you were to wake up and, and do your life over again. Uh, how might we, um, how might one do something um, differently? So, well, and I, I think um, following up on that is, is it really gets a person or a company away from what society thinks I should be, what mm -hmm. it thinks I should do, what my family thinks I should do, what my friends right. think I should do. And it moves us into like, what if I didn't have any friends or family? What if I had no idea what my family thought about me? What if I'd never read anything about the way society thinks I should be? Who would I be? And the, and the, the freedom in that is, is spectacular. Yeah, I mean, and that is very consonant with objectivism. And I think Ayn Rand's ideas are either sometimes misunderstood or sometimes, you know, obfuscated uh, to, 
to present it as, as something which it's not, which the, the idea of egoism, the idea of, of rational self-interest, benevolent self-interest uh, and independence is about mm. understanding yourself and owning yourself and, and trying to define your life and your purpose for yourself and not to, to live for others because that, uh, that often does not work out as one might plan. So, I, that's like to say there, Jack, I think you're, you're right. And inside of that is the word responsibility. And mm -hmm. definitely what I learned out of, out of reading Rand and, and <clears throat> the courses that I've taken is that no matter what, if, if I walked across the street when it said walk and I got hit by a car, I could spend the rest of my life blaming that, that driver, but I, I'm responsible. You know, I, I decide to go out for a walk that day. And only when I take responsibility can actually my freeze my mind up to then move forward. Otherwise, I'm going to die 10 years later. And, and I would have spent that 10 years with my mind working on a bunch of crap. And that, that's not the life anyone should want. So when, that just reminded me also, and I want to remind those of you who are joining us, we've got about 10, 12 more minutes. So hit us with your best shot, come up with a nice quick question and we'll try to get to a couple of them. But going back to the manifesto, Chip, uh, one of the most arresting principles in your original Lululemon manifesto was visualize your eventual demise. It has an amazing effect on how you live for the moment now, so I, I know you didn't mean that in a, a, a morbid way, but as you said, in a, also a liberating way. Um, how, how, first of all, how did you stumble upon that? What does it mean for you in uh, the way you, you plan your life and, and the way you approach business? Well, I think in the top 100 books I read, number 12, and it still holds around number 12, most important book of all time is Catch 22. So it's a story of a group of 18-year-olds that are flying bombing missions in World War II over northern Italy, and they have an egotistical colonel that keeps increasing the number of missions they have to do before they can go home. And eventually they figure out, well, I'm just, they have to die because you can't do infinite number of missions without dying. So it's a, it's a strata, it's a, it becomes a strategy of how knowing that you only have minutes, days, or maybe weeks to live how to get the most out of your life in that short time that you have. And it really had me think about, well, why should I, why should I not be, why should I, I'm 18 years old. I'm reading this book about 18 year olds, but what if I died tomorrow? How would I think about what I've done and what I've accomplished and what is the meaning of my life? And so I basically, you know, uh, wake up every morning, like, okay, like if today's the day or, you know, it's, uh, um, I, th I'm just, I'm just trying to get the squeeze and the juice out of every second that I live. And I'm very careful about who I spend time with and what I read as Peter Diamandis would say. And, um, and, you know, like, what is the most important? And it changes, I think, from your 20s to 30s to when you're 70, 80, and 90, and that's okay. Um, but I really hate to watch people do those should things, you know, like, oh, I should go to lunch with that person. Uh, 
I really should, I really should do that. <laughs> like people are, you just see it all over. They're wasting this precious, precious life that we have. And I, I feel like, I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm very fortunate because I have context around that and I'm pretty clear what death is. I don't like it at all. <laughs> uh, well, you seem to be doing a, a good job of taking, you know, precautions not to increase your chances of, of uh dying early um so and in terms of using every moment wisely it's uh, we feel extremely fortunate uh chip that you have um been so generous with being willing to spend time with us uh at this at the last gala that we had in malibu in october and taking a, a big chance on on us the previous year uh flying all the way out to new york and uh trusting us with your your story which we're now able to to bring to the world and speaking of storytellers uh a young woman who actually was at the at the gala um Maeve Ronan uh who also is a, a fellow Ayn Rand fan um she would like to know how can she as a, a new author uh, and she wrote a book for teenagers um, on how they can uh, deal with depression and how they can become more self-reliant and not be catastrophizing anything. So she asks, how can she as a new author be authentic and share impactful ideas to young people without the fear uh, and risk of being canceled or you know, just as she's trying to get her career started? Well, I think what's important to, if you have a point of view, uh, 100% you're going to get canceled to some extent. What I've, what I've learned is human beings are a bell curve. And so you know, we all know what a bell curve is, but 30% of people are risk adverse and run their life about being scared and are actually trying to bring the, the, the bulk of the bell curve over to them. And then on the other end, you have all the, it's called the, the entrepreneurs, the risk takers, the, the future thinkers, and, the, and they're over on, on that side. So, so if, you, if you're a futurist or you have a point of view that you cannot satisfy everybody, mm -hmm. and actually what you may want to do in the marketing of your book is actually get out the ideas that society in general doesn't agree with and assume then that the maybe even bad publicity is good publicity because the people that are that are going to read the reviews and they're going to they're going to see something in there and go oh i see the idea in here and this is a positive idea even though the article's bad the, the good people will find it yeah, and I think um, you know, courage is such an important virtue right now. I think you know, leaving aside ideology, but um, to have courage. If you if you've written a book, you want to, to share your message with people, uh, and um, and to to just just to if you can speak your truth and you can say it uh, the way you want to say it that. Uh, you will draw others to your um, to your banner, and that's certainly what we've experienced. Yeah, if, if I can say one more thing is, 
there, when I took my son to university, like, I don't know, like 14 years ago, he had an Apple computer and a laptop and the girl on the floor said, oh, you've got an Apple laptop. There's three people that have them this year, only one person that had it last year. And he turned to me, he said, dad, we should buy some Apple stock. And, but he said it from a point of view of an 18 year old going to university and he had a context, which I didn't. New writers are coming onto the world with an idea and a context and an experience and a life and a knowledge of which nobody else has, certainly nobody older than they do. And so, so there's a natural insecurity that this, this idea isn't what is out there in society, but your idea could be 100% the right idea from the context that you come from, especially as the world changes. Yeah, and I would say, Maeve, also, especially as, you know, as a young woman, that you are uh, potentially more prone to, to doubt yourself and to censor yourself. Um, and you might not be operating from a purely rational context as you, as you doubt yourself. And I, I know, I mean, look, I make mistakes all the time. But when I look back, I mean, every step of the way, I was so, you know, uh, didn't necessarily have, you know, confidence and I, I didn't feel like, oh, I felt, oh my goodness, you know, people are going to see right through me. But then I look back and I was like, you're badass, you know, I mean, <laughs> all these things that you thought you were making mistakes, actually, most, most of the time it turned out to be, uh, turned out to be okay. All right, we got four more minutes. I've got a question from Sarah who would like to know, Chip, how do you approach decision-making? Um, is there a right versus wrong? Do you recommend trusting your gut or you know, more following your logic or is that actually not even a real dichotomy? Yeah, there's two things I'd like to say about that. One is I always made an art of coming into my business and my family every day going, if I had to compete against myself, what would I do? Hmm. Um, and it's really an interesting thing because then I don't get stuck on, on a culture or a process or anything else in it, especially, you know, you could see companies that hadn't, hadn't made the switch to e-commerce and they, they didn't come into their business every day going, how would I compete? And sure enough, they're probably out of business through COVID. It died. So, um, <clears throat> and then I think the other part is, it is courage to believe in yourself. But again, I go back to that same conversation. You come from a, a life and an experience which nobody else in the world has had. You have a specific context which nobody in the world has. And to live under this thing of I should do it this way or that way because that's the way it's been done. Um, I'd say maybe, we'll, maybe you could take it that that was working against you as opposed to for you. Very, very interesting. Okay, uh, I think we can get a couple, maybe one more. Kevin Curran, uh, if you see an employee with potential but philosophically lost, uh, how do you introduce them to objectivist principles? I don't, I, I, I'm not sure you were, so yeah, I mean. Well, you... I mean, I, it's very clear to me. I. I was building a very, very um, fast growing company, went from zero to 30,000 people in no time. And um, so again, it was the culture of setting the linguistic abstraction, the codes, the manifesto, the values, the mission and everything else. But 
we also sent almost everybody to the landmark form right. course is a three-day course and um again it 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 really got people out of out of their past and into a created future and uh and and so you had so that's why i kind of say that's why i say our our vision was taking the world from a place of mediocre mediocrity to greatness i could see almost the whole world being mediocre like but but not knowing that they're mediocre or that they're good you know that that they, they didn't have the context of what greatness could be so i needed a way in three days to show those people with such potential what greatness was and um and and of course, it created a hell of a culture because then you had one solid thing everybody had done, which they could share in. They knew how to communicate through those words and definitions. Well, and uh, you are showing the world um, how to elevate from mediocrity to greatness. And your story, uh, which again, guys, do yourselves a favor. Um, check this out. This is Little Black Stretchy Pants. Uh, it's also, I can recommend highly the, the audible version, which is done in a kind of, you know, innovative way of having different people who are sharing their perspectives as part of the narrative, reading their own part. So it's very special. We were thrilled to, to feature it uh, in our book club, and, uh, and we're just really grateful to be able to share your, uh, your story and your vision and your values with the world. So thank you. Namaste, Chip. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week. We're going to be interviewing Greg Lukiana, the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind. So um, talking about canceling, talking about freedom of expression, talking about courage. Please, everyone, join us next week. And, uh, and we'll see you soon. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone.